Wayne News. Good morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Wednesday, December 28th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A Liberian online radio talk show host and political commentator says he's returning to Liberia today, Wednesday, from the United States. Well, the lack of the implementation of uh, security arrangement, it is reflects uh, clearly in this uh, violence. If there are the forces that are uh, deployed in that area, uh, the forces will have, uh, come and intervene to, uh, to support the civilians and also to repulse any attack. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development calls on South Sudan's top leadership to address the conflict in Upper Nile. As we speak now, the prevalence has reduced dramatically including how HIV and AIDS presents. You know, back then it was, you know, first of all, a diagnosis of HIV was like a death sentence. There was no treatment. And this year Uganda became the second African country after Zimbabwe to approve a long-lasting injectable drug to prevent the transmission of HIV. Those stories coming up on Daybreak Africa. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development has called on South Sudan's top leadership to address the conflict in Upper Nile. The Executive Secretary of IGAD also called on regional leaders to intervene and use their leverage to ensure that no entity or individual undermines the peace and stability of South Sudan. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wudu reports from Juba. The IGAD Executive Secretary, Wekne Gebehu, expressed extreme concern over the instability in Upper Nile and parts of jungle states and appealed for a de-escalation of the violence. Wekne called on President Salva Kiir, First Vice President Riyak Machar, and other signatories to the country's revitalized peace deal and regional leaders to intervene urgently. He says conflict in the region has displaced 50,000 people and the United Nations Office of the Human Rights Commissioner estimates it has caused more than 150 deaths. In his statement released Monday, Wakene appealed to the Igat Assembly of Heads of State and Government to, quote, use their leverage to ensure that no entity or individual undermines the peace and stability of South Sudan, end of quote. Pork Both Baluang, the acting press secretary in the office of the first vice president, Riak Machar, welcomes the IGAT statement. He says while calm has returned to the areas of violence, especially in parts of Upper Nile State, much more needs to be done politically. He says humanitarian intervention is needed to fully address the problem. The fighting in Upper Nile State began four months ago. Officials say it involves various rival militia groups, including the SPLMI Orchid Guang faction, the Aguelec forces, and a militia known as the White Army from Jungle State. Baluang blames the crisis on what he calls the delayed implementation of the security arrangements defined in the peace agreement. He also says the failure of SPLMIG and SPLMI Orchid Guang faction to implement their unification agreement contributed to the violence. 
Well, the lack of the implementation of uh, security arrangement, uh, it is reflected clearly in this uh, violence. If there are the forces that are uh, deployed in that area, uh, the forces will have uh, come and intervene to uh, uh, to support the civilians and also to repulse any attack. Efforts to reach South Sudan government spokesperson Michael McQuay were unsuccessful. However, South Sudan Army spokesperson Major General Lulroy Kwong says the Army has acted to contain the situation including deploying troops to the conflict areas under orders from President Kiir. Kwong denies that delays in the implementation of the security arrangement contributed to the conflict. When the situation escalated in Upper Nile, it was not our creation. There was a split within the ranks and files of SPLAIO, and they started fighting among themselves. We are not the ones that are running the affairs of SPLAIO. That was the genesis of the crisis. Other actors were drawn in, like the White Army from Jongolei State. The White Army left on foot and crossed the River Nile. They were living in areas not under the control of the government. They left from areas under the control of SPLAIO. He also denies that the failure to implement the agreement signed between the SPLMIG, SPLMI Ketguang faction and the Aguelec forces in the capital Khartoum contributed to the violence. Nearly a year ago, President Kerr's SPLMIG faction signed an agreement with the leaders of the SPLMI Ketguang faction and the Aguelec militia force. The deal was aimed at unifying them with the South Sudan People's Defense Forces. For viewers, Mwaki Simon Wudu in Juba. This year, Uganda became the second African country after Zimbabwe to approve a long-lasting injectable drug to prevent the transmission of HIV. Official data show about 1.4 million people are living with HIV in Uganda. For more insight, VOA's Lena Mudu spoke with Dr. Nelson Musova, Executive Director of Uganda AIDS Commission, and asked him to elaborate on some of the country's priorities in the fight against HIV AIDS. As we speak now, uh, the prevalence has reduced dramatically, including how HIV and AIDS presents. You know, back then it was, a, you know, first of all, the diagnosis of HIV was like a death sentence. There was no treatment. In the early 2000s, a lot of our people started accessing antiretroviral therapy, especially cutters of the American government through the Presidential Emergency uh, Relief Fund for AIDS and uh, PEPFAR. And of course, enrollment on ART changes the whole picture. People start living a near normal life. The symptoms disappear. That also goes with the disappearance of stigma because back before the advent of the antiretroviral therapy, because of the presentation of the disease, there was a lot of stigma. The situation is not no longer the same. Although we have no cure, we have no vaccine, but with antiretroviral therapy, with other availability of prevention interventions, people are living a much better quality of life now. We have approximately 1.4 million people uh, out of a population of uh, about 42 million living with HIV now, about 5.5 HIV prevalence. UNH says that there are inequalities that are creating an impediment to the end of the epidemic or at least to improving the picture overall. How does this translate in Uganda? Are you, are you in your country seeing such uh, inequalities? 
one of the underlying driving factors is, is inequitable distribution of wealth. And because of young people, especially the girl child, not accessing some of the basic things, menstrual hygiene materials, uh, uh, scholastic materials, they are forced uh, into, you know, transactional sex. They are forced, you know, to go into relationships where there is power imbalance with older men with whom it's not possible to bargain for protective sex. So yes, indeed, the inequalities still exist. They are part of what continues to drive uh, new HIV infections. We are focusing on young people. I told you about the 54,000 new HIV infections in 2021 alone. Uh, 20,000 of those were amongst young people between 15 to 24. And two thirds for every five infections, four of those were girls. So our priorities now are focusing on young people, focusing on the adolescent girls, young women and boys, but also, you know, uh, people who are at the margins, vulnerable populations, the commercial sex workers, the, you know, the incarcerated populations, the men who have sex with men. That's the only way that we'll be able to meet the, the 2030 targets. And speaking of intervention, Uganda approved the use of the injectable HIV preventable drug, Cabotegravi. Uh, tell us more about that. Uh, what, what does it look like in terms of uh, uh, deploying this strategy in the country for prevention? Is it also being uh, considered for, for treatment? For it to be protective. The injection, you know, removes lots of barriers. It addresses the adherence challenges. It addresses the stigma and discrimination challenges. Sometimes people are in a relationship and they have not necessarily shared their HIV status with their partner. And, and the PrEP injectable, you know, addresses that. So it's a welcome additional option. As a country, we just say yes, we shall add this to our options. We will go into looking at, we will sit down with our partners, look at the resources available. But the, our approach has always been that every time there's a proven cost-effective intervention, we make sure that our population accesses it. The more the options, the, the, the easier the, the fight. To what extent is Uganda winning the war against AIDS? Is, can we say that Uganda is winning the war or is it very much a challenge still? Uganda is winning the war. In 2016, the UN set up the 90-90-90 targets where 90% of the people who have HIV test and know their status and 90% of those who test positive are enrolled on treatment, and 90% of those who enroll take their medication. Uganda was one of the eight countries globally that achieved the 90-90-90 by 2020. Following COVID, uh, like most countries, you know, some of our gains were reversed. We saw new infections rising. The curve is not quite bending at the rate that we had expected it to bend. I've just mentioned uh, new infections. We have complacency. We have, you know, we see infections amongst young people, but we are raising the vigilance. Dr. Nelson Musoba, Executive Director of Uganda AIDS Commission, speaking with my colleague, Lino Amudu. A Liberian online radio talk show host and political commentator says he's returning to Liberia today, Wednesday, from the United States. Henry Costa, host of the Costa Show, has been a staunch critic of President George Weir's government. He fled Liberia last year after the government accused him of forging a travel document and issued a criminal writ for his arrest. The government also told the local Bush Road Radio not host Costa's talk show, which is broadcast from the United States because Costa was a fugitive. 
Costa tells VOS James Bate he's going back to Liberia because President Weir told his justice minister to drop the charges against him and now he's returning home to run for the Liberian Senate seat held by President Weir's party. I'm going home because, uh, first of all, it's home. I miss home. I've not been home since uh, my eventful uh, return to the States in uh, January 2020. Uh, secondly, I, as you may be aware, I have declared my intention uh, to run for the Senate seat of Montserrat County, uh, the country's most important political subdivision. So I'm going on the ground to begin to prepare for my 2023 Senate bid. But we have two senators already. We have uh, Darius Dillon and the other senator, I mean, on which party ticket are you running? The other senator's seat, the seat he currently occupies, will be up for grabs in uh, the 2023 general presidential election. That is the one for which I am contesting. And um, it took me a long time to come to this decision. Uh, there's been a, a widespread groundswell of support and call on me to step up and run. And so I've decided that it's high time I heeded the people's call and avail myself to their service in a different role. So are you running as an independent or on which party ticket? No, sir. I am a registered bona fide card carry member of the All Liberian Party. We collaborate with the Unity Party of uh, former Vice President Joseph Boakai. So I will be running on my party's ticket and uh, I hope I can secure, well, I think I've pretty much secured the support of several other parties within our arrangement. So, Henry, as you said, you literally fled Liberia the last time after the government accused you of, uh, I think, forging travel documents. Can we say you are a fugitive and are you not concerned you could be arrested upon your arrival? Well, that would not be the first nor second time that I would be arrested. I've gone to jail twice on trumped up political charges. And uh, I was indeed they brought this uh, ridiculous Trump-up charge that I forged an emergency travel document. Uh, sometime in March of this year, President Weir reached out to me and spoke with me and said that I should go back home and I'm, I'm a free man. And I said, no, your government is saying that I'm a fugitive from justice and you're telling me I'm a free man to go home. So if what you're saying is true, then instruct your Minister of Justice to issue a statement, trapping all those ridiculous Trump-up charges. And they did that. Uh, the, the very next day after our call, in late March of this year. So all of those ridiculous charges that were brought against me, or that charge of forgery or emergency travel document was dropped. And so I'm a free man. And even if they hadn't dropped the charges, I would have still gone home. So who dropped the charges, President Weir or the courts? President Weir. Because they never went to court, Mr. Borte. The charges were drawn up. They were never taken to court. You see, uh, there's something called a nolle prosequa. So if there's an ongoing case in court against you, the state has a request to court to abandon the, that case. But that was never done because it, they never proceeded to court because they never had any case in the first place because it was a politically motivated thing. So the Ministry of Justice simply said the ongoing investigation into Mr. Costa's supposed forgery of a travel document has been dropped. So you mentioned you're a prospective uh, senatorial candidate. Uh, I'd like to ask you, um, what is your take on recent developments in Liberia. Let's talk about the elections coming up and the opposition readiness, corruption. Make a comment on what, how you see recent developments in Liberia. Mr. Bote, I'm very concerned, as are most Liberians, about the, the incompetence, the patent incompetence and poor handling 
of the electoral process by the election body, the National Elections Commission. They initially announced that voter registration would begin on the 15th of December. Then they came back and said it would not happen, and I had predicted that. Now they, are, they have announced that voter registration will commence on the 20th of March to end on the 11th of May. But we are migrating from the ORM system to the biometric system, which is what the entire world is using. And we have no experience whatsoever in using the biometric system. I am concerned that current crop of leadership at the Elections Commission, that they lack the competence and the capacity to conduct these elections in a credible, transparent, and fair manner. I'm very concerned about that. Well, Henry, thank you so much again. Pleasure speaking with you. Wish you success in your uh, political endeavor. Thank you very much, Mr. Balter. It has been a pleasure. And compliments of the season to you again. And same to you. That was Liberian political commentator and radio talk show host, Henry Costa, speaking with my colleague, James Barte from the United States. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Douglas Ipoga in Washington. Today is Wednesday, December 28th. Somalia's president over the weekend said the vast majority of paid civil servants were neither in the country nor working. Hassan Sheikh Mohamud said 3,500 of 5,000 people on the government payroll appear to be so-called ghost workers. Ahmed Mohamed reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud's assertion that the most government employees do not show up for the work was condemned by Somalis. While there have been similar claims in the past, the president's statement was met with outrage and calls for action. Mahat Mahmoud is fruit vendor in Mogadishu. He notes the government relies heavily on donor support to fund its budget, yet it pays people who do not report to work. Mahmoud says the so-called ghost workers should be made to refund their salaries and prosecuted for corruption and abuse of public trust. Somalia's 2023 budget stands at about 960 million US dollars. More than two-thirds of it expected to come from donors. University graduate Deka Ilmi says the president and prime minister must swiftly deal with the issue of ghost workers. She says the government is paying more than 3,500 people who are not present at their offices while students who completed their education are jobless. Ilmi says the president and prime minister should urgently do something about it. President Mahmoud talked about the so-called ghost workers while addressing officials during Friday prayers at the presidential mosque. Mahmoud said the government's biometric time and attendance system shows the number of staff that are present. Mahmoud says the machine does not lie but indicates whoever puts on their thumb on it. Civil servants are more than 5,000, he says, but only 1,500 are present. Somalia's Prime Minister Hamza Abdibare on Saturday confirmed the problem and ordered ministries to inspect and ensure that staff follow working hours. University of Somalia political scientist Mohamed Matan doubts that there are so many government workers not actually working. He says threats from Al-Shabaab militants who target public servants may also be keeping some away. Matan says fear of Al-Shabaab has forced everyone to trust only few and keep away from others. 
although he knows civil servants cannot be fired and that has also led them not to be committed to work. And even if they go to the office, says Matan, they do not work. Transparency International has for the last two decades ranked Somalia one of the most corrupted countries in the world. Mahad Wasuge is the executive director of Somali Public Agenda, a research institution focusing on governance. He says ghost workers should be removed from public service, which should be reformed. Wasuge says that can be achieved with a broad government plan regarding the reform of the civil service, which is based on open, transparent recruitment. He says even director general should be transparently recruited because they are not politicians but are there for administration and technical expertise. Somalia is hoping to secure debt relief from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank by the end of 2023, but it requires strict adherence to fiscal procedures, including prudent management of public resources and streamlining Somalia's public service. Ahmed Mohamed, for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Countries in Africa's Western Sahel region, including Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger, saw a 50% increase in deaths due to conflict in 2022. That is according to figures from the Armed Location and Event Data Project. As violence has spread, so too has Russia's influence and political instability with increasing coups and numbers of displaced people. Henry Wilkins reports from Niamey, Niger. As the Western Sahel conflict entered its 11th year starting from Mali's 2012 coup, violence grew worse. Data from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project show around 9,000 fatalities due to the conflict in 2022, up from about 6,000 the year before. Analysts say many in the Sahel countries are exhausted by the worsening conflict and they are looking to new international partners for solutions. Some in the region, like Bacharu Wadrago, a painter and decorator in Burkina Faso, believe Russia will remedy Burkina Faso's insecurity. He says Burkina Faso has been partnered with France for years. If France really wanted to help the country with terrorism, they would have done it long ago. If you partner with someone who doesn't help you take care of business, you have to get rid of them and find someone who can. That's why we think we have to pivot to Russia. 2022 saw France wrap up Operation Barkhan, its military intervention based in Mali, as it became increasingly unpopular and relations with Mali's military junta began to deteriorate. France is now moving much of its military operation in the Sahel to Niger. In Mali, French troops have been replaced by mercenaries from a Russian paramilitary organisation, the Wagner Group, which has been accused of human rights abuses and of fueling more violence than they prevent. In Burkina Faso, pro-Russian and anti-French protests and attacks on French-owned institutions and businesses have become commonplace since a second military coup in a year took place in September. Both the Malian and Burkinabi hunters cited the previous government's inability to solve the insecurity. Asked how the Sahel's conflict could develop in 2023, analyst Michael Shirkin of 14 North Strategies told VOA. What remains to be seen is, is what happens as the population of Mali sort of figures out that things are getting worse despite everything. Burkina Faso, I worry a great deal about. I think given the scale of the problems of Burkina Faso, I think they need a lot more international help. I'd like to see the U.S. government getting more involved, trying to help the Burkina government. 
Analysts have also noted that an increasing number of terror attacks are taking place in the northern regions of Ivory Coast, Ghana, Togo and Benin, along the borders with Burkina Faso and Niger. Press freedom has dwindled, according to advocacy groups, with international broadcasters and journalists being banned from Burkina Faso and Mali. Meanwhile, local rights groups and press freedom advocates say human rights continue to suffer too. Dauda Diallo runs a Bukanabi rights group, the collective against impunity and stigmatization of communities. I have to say very clearly that since January, it must be said very clearly that since January to the present day, we've noted great sadness and bitterness as the security situation has continued to deteriorate. Running parallel to this deterioration of the security situation, there are human rights violations, he said. In Burkina Faso, the new junta says it's recruiting 30,000 extra civilian volunteers to fight terrorism. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Niamey, Niger. And that's it for this Wednesday, December 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington, wishing you a great day. Music.